All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, band. Thank you for that lesson in red plaid. Did anybody else catch that today? Everybody feels like Paul Bunyan when it drops to 62 degrees in Austin, Texas. Or maybe that was a tribute to the late, great Jerry Jeff. I don't know, y'all. It's, it's Austin town, and we're making it real down here. So it's good to be with you. My name is Jason, if we haven't met. Um, maybe someday we can. Maybe we'll rent a big venue, and everybody can come to town, and we can actually get back to life someday. So welcome all. Welcome to this little space that we're building together. We're excited that you've chosen to join us here, and we're also excited to have somebody special in the room today. Nancy, I'm going to embarrass you. I just had to. Sam's mom is with us today in the golden seat chair, and so we're so excited. You'd, you may not know this, the, the, the long story of the beaches, and we, we kind of hail from similar suburbs outside of Chicago. We share some history in that way, but we're honored to have you here. Your leadership for the church over decades has been strong, and your legacy, we get to live with her and her husband every day, and so it's a, it's a huge honor to have you here. I'm going to try not to act like she's here. Some people in the room make you feel nervous, and some people don't. So Nancy doesn't, so just in case you wondered. So once again, this week, I sat with an ancient text and watched it reveal new parts of my heart to me. Does anybody, can anybody resound or resonate with that, how we do with our scriptures? And as you know, we are in the middle of a preaching series on the books of First and Second Samuel entitled, Past as Prologue, meaning, of course, that we repeat these things, and even ancient things can be new and fresh. And we're building on the assumption that even very old material about ancient kings and prophets and such and encounters in places that we will never see can speak to us still. It sure has spoken to me this week, in case that was something you needed to know. And so part of what we, uh, we're driving at, the Guild and I, is, is in this extended conversation around leadership and leaders uh, is, 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 of course, related to current events, and maybe you know, maybe you've been watching the news, we're about to pick our next generation of leaders, and that matters, it's especially important now. But as always, any true sitting with this biblical content holds a deeper opportunity still, and that is to consider ourselves, how we are leading, how we are healing, what decisions we are actively making about the sort of people that we are becoming, what we get to do with our calling to lead and our calling to follow, which, as I will suggest today and over time, is the most important aspect of leadership, followership. Anyway, the rumble began for me first thing Monday morning, you know my routine, as I turned my thoughts to Saul and to an honest conversation about the heart of a leader. You know, I argued a few weeks ago, you might, you might remember, That there are no flat characters in this story, or any other story for that matter. There are no good or bad leaders. There are only people following and flowing in and out of health and focus and what God sees and what God hears. It takes discipline to hold our judgment at bay, that's true. But if we have to force these leaders into clean boxes to get our heads around them, then David must be good and Saul must be bad, right? The people must be bad for choosing Saul, but somehow Samuel, oh no, he's good, right? (laughs) But then you'd have to make room enough for your good category for Samuel to chop up Agag, the Amalekite king, into little butchered bits before the Lord. Is that what good guys do? Sam's going to explain that hot mess next week, so easy peasy, Sam. She's going to be working on that manuscript this week. But good and bad are unhelpful categories is what I'm suggesting when considering ancient characters or contemporary characters or loved ones or leaders we've served under or even ourselves. 
So today, rather than rush on past Saul as a young and newly minted leader who squanders his kingdom tragically, I want to hover over a few details that might unlock some truths about ourselves, which of course is foundational, is my foundational value of my biblical hermeneutic, sitting with old stories in hopes that they might further reveal me to myself, that they might further reveal us to ourselves, that they might in the end reveal the heart of love to us all. You see how that works, right? Maybe you're catching on. Where is there time enough to judge others and shame them with this ancient text? Where does that time come from? Who has time to recast old tribal boundaries in new ways that favor us if we're busy trying to get this text to read us, to reveal God to us? It's a full-time job in case you wondered. You can only weaponize this material in your free time, and if you sit with it properly, it never stops working on you. There is no free time to wound others with these stories. Remember the whole plank in your eye bit? Yep, that's exactly how all this works when we stop focusing on letting it read us and push it onto others. Well, that's a sign. So Saul has been leading and teaching me this week. From my studies, he feels like a reluctant leader, which might be why I like him so much. Now remember, he didn't go looking to be king. He went looking for donkeys. Kingship found him. Esha brilliantly taught us last week that it was the people who actually wanted a king. Saul didn't self-promote. He didn't campaign. He didn't run for office. He went in search of some lost asses. And boy, did he find them. I couldn't resist. Sorry, Chris. Couldn't resist that. We don't have time to read the entire story, and so let me summarize some of the details for us because we've got some great characters coming between now and Advent, great things to talk about. But let me just summarize a little bit of the story of Saul here. He was good-looking. The text says that he was taller than all the rest, which I guess that sucks if you're Tom Cruise. Uh, Tall apparently equaled handsome to the text. Saul had a major setback, though. He was from the humblest house among the smallest and least significant tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, to be sure. No natural leadership material was being born there, just a guy in search of some lost donkeys. When he and his servant are unable to locate the lost animals of of Saul's father, they turn into a village where the seer lived, capital S, right? That would have been an ancient form of prophet. They were seeking a sign. The servant knew the reputation of Samuel, the judge and spokesperson of God. Now again, all they wanted was assurances that their donkeys could be found. They, they, They weren't looking for anyone to be anointed king. And there was a big feast going on that day, as it turns out. And the servant, as they come through the village, they bump into Samuel. But God had already spoken to Samuel, telling him that he would tomorrow meet the one to anoint king that the people were asking for, the one that God himself had chosen, despite his marginal upbringing and his obscure pedigree, despite his own reluctance, as it would turn out. And so here we see what Jessica taught us several weeks ago, that God is always lifting the constrained and the blamed, moving them towards greater mobility and praise. Of course, God chose from among the least likely to lead his people. So Samuel invites young Saul and his servant to sit at a place of honor at a banquet table, this, of course, being one of the central metaphors of the whole of Scripture or oh, church. Even in ancient times, God wanted to commune and feast with the least likely of characters. Anyway, Samuel persists, and Saul is shocked. And so they sit, and they feed Saul a special piece of thigh meat set aside. That's odd. I guess that's like a brisket, maybe. 
They made a bed for him on the roof as, it, as the night fell, because I guess that meant something to important ancient minds that he would sleep on the roof. That feels odd to me. But in the morning, Samuel wakes Saul up, calls him down from the roof, and they began to leave town. Before he gives him the word of the Lord, he anoints him by pouring oil over his head, which of course was the universal sign of God's selection. And then he gives him a series of precise instructions, the fulfillment of which were to serve as proof to Saul that God meant business. Wells and trees and a dude with three little lambs, the whole shooting match. Samuel tells Saul that he would even get caught up in a prophetic frenzy, which sounded like a traveling punk band from the 80s. I'm not sure what to make of that. And then these words that ring so true to me in 1 Samuel 10. Now when these signs meet you, do whatever you see fit to do, for God is with you, verse 8. And you shall go down to Gilgal ahead of me, then I will come down to you and to present a burnt offering and other sacrifices of well-being. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. As he turned away to leave Samuel, listen to this, God gave him another heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. These are the words that moved me this week. Started on Monday and didn't stop until today. I wonder if you can guess why. Seems to me, given the text, that the heart transplant that God gave Saul had something to do with courage. The story will bear this out. In place of a weak and low-minded view of himself and his importance and where he comes from, even of his abilities, God gave him a new heart. After all, he would become a deliverer, which would require him to see and feel things differently. Remember, the text does not say God had to teach him how to fight. It wasn't the art of warfare that made him a warrior or his knowledge of policy or organization or his leadership skills. It was a new heart. Did you catch that? And it didn't take immediately, at least not entirely. How do I know? Well, Saul's uncle grills him when they return from finding the donkeys, and Saul admits they didn't find them. Not exactly, but they visited Samuel, which prompts his uncle to ask, and what did he say to which the not yet courageous anointed young king only admits he told us the donkeys would be found. Saul mentions nothing about an anointing. But there's another textual detail that I love so much. One version of Saul's anointing as king says that Samuel the seer calls him down from the roof, pours oil on his head before he left the village after their initial encounter. It feels almost like a private affair for whatever reason, but there's another part of the story also preserved in our text, which says that Samuel was chosen by Lot when all of Israel was summoned by the prophet to the town of Mizpah. Perhaps this was a way to ratify the private selection God made by picking Saul. I don't really know, but what I do know is that the coronation, Samuel makes it very clear that their demand for a king was a rejection of the way God actually chose to lead them. Nevertheless, they insisted and God yielded. God listened. And God made his selection by lots. And right at the moment when Saul was about to step on center stage and take his place of honor before his people, he disappears. He vanishes. He's nowhere to be found. A reluctant leader. How awkward. But then God reveals Saul's location to Samuel. He's hiding among the luggage. Of course he is. God had given him a new heart, but that new heart was still fighting against Saul's reluctance to lead. You see, leadership is a heavy load. You see, friends, it's heart work, as it turns out. 
It's not about being taller, more gifted than the rest. It's not about coming from the right family or pedigree. Leadership is a new way of seeing, of hearing, even of waiting as the story will flesh out with courage. That's what leadership is about. Leadership actually is about disciplined and thoughtful followership. It's about restraint and power shared. It's about trust that things done in silence, in private, away from the crowd, actually matter to a God who sees. Now, this isn't the only way to read the ancient story. I'm accentuating the parts of Saul's story because they speak to me. See, the narrator has other plans, of course. He clearly wants to demonstrate the flaws of Saul's leadership, so he drops clues all throughout the passage to alert us to how tragic this kingdom of Saul would eventually turn out to be. If you have a careful eye, for example, you might have noticed the contextual references to Saul being the son of a man named Kish who hailed from a city of Gibeah. This, of course, connects the house of Saul to the murder of the Levite's concubine in Judges 19 and 20. Maybe you remember that. You can read that later. That chapter in ancient Israelite history results, of course, in a civil war, a war that Saul's ancestors would have almost certainly been involved in. The narrator dog whistles Saul's flaws to the reader from the very beginning. But also significant to me is the selection of Saul as leader by casting lots. This harkens back to the sin of Achan. Maybe you remember from the book of Joshua. We won't go into all of this other than to say that Achan was chosen by lots as the guilt 